0: Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week rather than our usual one because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined again in New Hampshire by Ben Dominick, who is editor at large of uh, The Spectator World. And Ben, the last podcast we did from New Hampshire was really about how flat and uh, worn out this whole thing is. So uh, I think let's try not to do that again if we can, even though that does seem to be the theme of this primary, uh, perhaps where we could start off is on Ron DeSantis, because that's mm-hmm. what's changed since the last podcast, is Ron DeSantis dropped out quite suddenly. I mean, there was a fair bit of speculation going around that he was about to do it. What are your thoughts on that, first of all? You know, I, I think that
1: one of the big questions that we have to ask um, coming out of this whole process is whether it was even going to be possible for any of these candidates to have the kind of uh, support necessary to take on Someone who essentially has the power of incumbency within his own party. Uh, and I don't think that the answer to that is, is a very positive one. Uh, and th- there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that I think the establishment of the Republican Party is overwhelmingly pro-Trump, uh, including the bulk of what I would categorize as the donor class being, if not pro-Trump, at least willing to back him. And I think that that's something that is a change, obviously from from even a few years ago. Secondly, I think that one of the big problems that we you know see within the Republican cohort is that there's kind of a, a movement problem where if if you come out of kind of the the conservative fiscal conservative movement of even ten years ago, and Nikki Haley is experiencing this right now, what does that mean? It means that you ran in twenty ten or twenty eleven or twenty twelve on what essentially amounted to an anti-Obama fiscal conservative position. One which, you know, is most closely associated with Paul Ryan, Mm. but, you know, was a Tea Party message. One that was held by, you know, Marco Rubio and Rand Paul and Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and all these other people who were swept into power by that Tea Party wave. Those positions are anathema to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you see kind of this closing argument uh, about Ron DeSantis and about Nikki Haley that, oh, they're these crypto Bush, uh, Romney, Ryan Republicans, because when they first ran for office, they were saying things like we need to reform Social Security and we need to reform Medicare, Mm -hmm. things that became very unpopular within the Republican cohort, you know, ostensibly overnight. Where you know you had uh, you know, so many different people who had been making those arguments about fiscal responsibility and the like, just decide, well, we're not going to be about that anymore. Yeah. And uh, and obviously, Trump, chief among them. Now, one can argue that you know his position on that uh, proved to be far more successful, in part because you know it was you know certainly earned more support from people who benefit from those programs. Mm. But it's not like that history from ten years ago just vanishes overnight. Yes. And so I think a big thing that was always going to be a problem for anybody challenging Trump was that if you had any tie to the Tea Party agenda which really was again the animating force of the party as recently as a decade ago then that was going to be something that was rejected. Yeah. It's, it's it's I mean it's it's something that the voters now view as being a sign of you know, uh, I don't know, fiscal elitism. I don't know how you want to describe it. Uh, they associate it with sort of, uh, of globalism and the like, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, it's a different party cohort. It's a different voting electorate, which includes a lot of people who benefit from those programs and want them to persist uh, and even expand in some cases. So my own feeling about this was that this was always going to be a, a hard slog. But I certainly think that Ron DeSantis did himself no favors. His organization was dysfunctional. Uh, His super PAC uh, could not fulfill the kind of obligations that it needed to. Mm. The people he chose for key positions, such as consultant Jeff Rowe, uh, have a very mixed record in terms of, of their positioning. And for Nikki Haley, I think that a big part of her problem was that with Ron in the race and with Tim Scott in the race and Mike Pence in the race, there was all of this different kind of donor sensitivity about, do I really want to pick Nikki Haley to be the person who we're going to end up with, Mm -hmm. even if in retrospect, I think there are probably a lot of them who wish that they had endorsed her earlier.
0: Yes. I mean, it is interesting what you you say that Trump seems to have taken the energy and the style of the Tea Party and turned it into something very, very different. Mm -hmm. I know you talk about Social Security. I know particularly with New Hampshire, he seems to be very quick to hit uh, his Republican opponents on Social Security which kind of belies what a lot of what the media are talking about in New Hampshire, which is it's is more affluent, it's more libertarian. Mm-hmm. Um, but Trump is, identif- is very quick to identify that Social Security is the thing that you hit people on, and it seems to be very, very effective.
1: Yes, and, and of course, what it does is it, it serves as kind of a substitute for a lack of a plan. Yeah. Um, you know, Social Security, obviously, unlike Medicare or Medicaid, or any of the healthcare debates that we have in America, social security is essentially a math problem, meaning that it is, or maths, as you would say, um, which is to say that you have a group of people, a program is built for, who turn out to live decades longer than you anticipated that they would. Yeah. Uh, and you're still paying them as if you know we have the same kind of economic expectations as we did back in the 1950s. Uh, and so I think that this is not something that, It sort of substitutes for him having any kind of real fiscal or budgetary policy to put into position. But I do think that one other aspect of of New Hampshire that is going to be interesting to see coming out of this is, you know, New Hampshire and Iowa, the reason that they still are here on the Republican side is in the case of Iowa, you have a abnormally white rural state uh, with lots of evangelical and religious uh, overabundance of, of their representation. And then on the uh, New Hampshire side, you do have the more secular, the more libertarian uh, group, but it's also a small state and it's one that it's very easy for s- smaller, less well-funded campaigns mm. to come in and, ma- and and have a shot to make a difference. And I think that part of the thing that may be happening, and we'll see whether they follow suit with what Democrats have done. Democrats have obviously effectively, you know, shived iowa new hampshire they've moved on to doing uh you know what south carolina will effectively be their first real primary um and i think that you know part of that is because south carolina has a you know an abundantly black uh, population it speaks more to the base of the democratic party but it's also one that is a pro-military state so it has some different interesting factors for that reason i think that For Republicans, they really need to evaluate after this process where you had the popular Republican governor of Iowa and the popular Republican governor of New Hampshire endorse two people who were not Donald Trump. Mm. And that if that ends up having no real effect on their ability to win those states, are those states really reflective or do they reflect the the opinions of of locals the way that the party would like them to? You know, if you have Donald Trump can talk about having a landslide in, in, in Iowa. He certainly did when you look at the percentages. But fewer people voted for him in Iowa than voted for my state senator uh, in the last election in Virginia. Do you really want to come down to having fifty to 55,000 people in Iowa decide who ends up being the nominee? It just doesn't seem to make sense.
0: Yes. And I, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how the primary cycle now may be broken because of this. And I wonder if that speaks to what you're talking about there, which is that on the Democratic side as well, uh, the relationship between the party and the mm-hmm. people has changed very fundamentally, mm-hmm. and parties just don't really know what to do next.
1: yeah, I mean the the on the democratic side, you have the situation where all of these external groups are essentially uh, supplanting or representing the party in ways that um, uh, you know they didn't before, where the DNC, while it may run things in a titular manner, uh, you know it, it really you really do have these super groups incredibly well-funded um on the on the left that really are driving the policy priorities uh, and agenda of the party uh, in a way that that uh, you know is is certainly not something that you would expect uh, given past experience but then on the right i think that what you have is a very a very weak party in the rnc one that has struggled to raise money separate from donald trump himself Mm -hmm. raising money, which obviously goes into his legal funds and to supporting him in all of these different court battles. And I think you also have a party uh, that doesn't have a lot of trust from either faction. Uh, You know, even if it is Trumpian in the sense that Ronna Romney McDaniel, uh, you know, is viewed as a Trumpian person within it. She's the longest serving RNC head at this point, which seems astonishing, but it's true. And she is just not trusted by, you know, local you know, party leaders and and politicians who view the RNC as basically being pretty useless, um, not supplying them, you know, not just with policy guidance, but with any kind of real help in terms of getting themselves elected. And so, you know, I think that this is, this is a very odd time in American politics because it's not just that we have these outsized kind of caricatures who are functionally our leading politicians, but then you also have the institutions that used to guard in some ways, the nomination process really not being part of that at all. And in fact, being beholden to these candidates, Mm. the idea that the RNC would go through a cycle and never be able to cajole its likeliest nominee to appear on a debate stage with anybody. That's astonishing on a certain level.
0: Yes. Just quickly on that. Do you think uh, he, I mean, Let's say Haley outperforms expectations tomorrow mm-hmm. and stays in the race. And it, and it's, you know, it's him versus Haley. I think Trump has said if it got down to two or suggested if it got down to two, he would do a debate. Do you think that might happen? Personally, I
1: think no. And the real reason I think is in part because it's Haley.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think if it had been DeSantis and he felt that he could deliver a killing blow to him in some contest, That would come before, say, his home state of Florida next month, uh, or I should say in in March, or let's say that he was competitive going into South Carolina, and Trump agreed to do maybe one debate just to get him off the stage. Uh, I, I could have seen that as a counterfactual. But with Haley, I don't think he's actually that scared of her. I think he thinks that he can beat her fairly easily. And unless something dramatic changes that surprises all of us. You know, he really does view himself as being the ultimate nominee, the undeniable once and future King of the Republican cohort. Mm -hmm. And, and because of that, I think he doesn't want to risk having anything that could be potentially used against him. the bigger question from my perspective is whether the debates are entirely over for this cycle. Yeah. Um, You know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump only debated twice obviously there were other factors involved there but you know i could really see a scenario where Biden especially if he you know has kind of the same level of support that he currently does views debating Trump as being riskier than mm. not and and there may not be a lot of pressure for him to do it which you know is going to leave a lot of networks uh, scrounging around for cash you know hoping right. trying to find ways to replace that income uh, but you know, is certainly not something that I think anyone would be surprised by if we get to November without having any debates
0: between the two nominees. Well, and and I mean, Joe Biden does seem to be deteriorating pretty fast. Um, yeah. And you know, to see them on stage together, it was it, they were awful debates. Uh, the first one, particularly, I remember. Yes. Uh, it was just a really, really shockingly bad debate. Yes. On, 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 in many ways, and I mean, yeah, it might just be better, we're better off being spared of it. But you do hit on a key point which is uh the money because you know money talks everywhere but in America mm-hmm. uh, money really talks and this whole evisceration of the primary process that we're discussing uh, and the fact that these debates are not happening that means a serious loss of money for media networks mm-hmm. for a lot of people involved um, in American politics and in American media is that sustainable
1: you know i think that one of the things we have to consider is that in an era of cord cutting of uh, people turning away from uh, normal broadcast, cable TV, et cetera, and instead turning to streaming. the One of the interesting things that's happened because of that, of course, is that uh, an explosion of interest in live events, live programming, has taken the place of that, you know, and is the one thing that is still sustainable for these networks. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why in the last year, for instance, of the top 100 um, tuned in uh, events during the during the year in America, all but three of them were football games. Yeah, and so it's it's one of these situations where you you have to understand that the the interest in these debates and things like that um, are key to getting people to actually sit down and pay attention to something. But you know, I don't know what these networks are going to do in terms of replacing that coverage, or you know how they're going to try to find ways to do it. They have a lot of court cases. Yeah. They can cover, you know, when it comes to Trump uh, and uh, and his appearances there, I'm sure will be ones that they are eager to broadcast in whatever form mm. uh, they can. You know, I'm sure that there's going to be more and more pressure for them to host town halls and things like that that try to pull in uh, some eyeballs. But it's <laughs> it's a very, very odd election to be covering because mm. all of the traditional uh, points and and uh, waves, the ebbs and flows of the cycle, seem to be being altered in front of our eyes, and not just because of the unique nature of these candidates, though that that is a big part of it. Um, we're just going to see something that I think is doesn't really resemble any of the modern campaigns that we've really experienced over the last forty years or so.
0: Yes, and would you, so is it just another defeat for linear television? Is, is it just a... I, I mean, I
1: think that's a part of it, um, yeah. but it's you know the. I do think that there is something that is being lost in this moment in the sense that there was for a while a kind of sustained approach to politics where you had, you know, a natural rhythm of different things that could be part of the expectations of what would happen. And now that just doesn't happen anymore. It's it's just been fundamentally altered. Um, and I don't know if we're going to go back to it, if it's going to be something that resets when the candidates are perhaps less senile and more capable of standing on a stage. Yeah. Um, But uh, it's definitely something that I think for political junkies like me, we miss it. Yes. I mean, just, I know this is going to sound like a silly thing, but just think about the fact that SNL won't have debates to parody. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like those are, those are some of the most fun, you know, sort of political entertainment television that comes out of every presidential cycle. Yes. They won't, I mean, Will they even bother? Well, maybe maybe they can invent one. Yeah.
0: Well, and particularly New Hampshire. You know, I mean, uh, I came in in 2016, and I mean, I'd done a bit about American politics, and but I was still, my mind was blown coming here and just seeing the the, the strangeness of it. You know, all the candidates all going to that silly cafe that they all yeah. go to, and it's a ritual, it's a tradition. And speaking to the people here, you know, people working in bars and so on. They are extremely depressed because they they've been stripped of this very important part of their economic and 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 social life in a way in in New Hampshire.
1: I'm curious. What you say that they're depressed. Do they have hopes that it's going to return, or do they feel that it's lost?
0: They did. We spoke to uh, a barman last night who was sort of quite down about the fact it was completely empty. Said normally this we'd be booked out uh, by companies or TV Mm. networks or whatever, and it was all. completely flat and empty. Uh, He did say, he hoped in 2028, they'd have a proper primary again, Mm -hmm. but he was worried about it going to South Carolina on the Democratic side, which it probably will now.
1: Yeah. I I think that you, you know, parties tend to follow each other in these things. And, you know, if you were trying to kind of redraw the map for Republicans Mm -hmm. uh, to get maybe give them a more accurate depiction of the electorate, you know, you might say, we'd rather have primaries. Uh, or, you know, uh, the process play out in North Carolina and Missouri and Nevada and uh, Wisconsin or, or, or you know, uh, or Arkansas or, you know, one of these other places. Yeah. And I, I think that it, it, there's a number of different arguments that can be made in that favor. But, you know, New Hampshire has two Democrat senators, it has two Democrats in the House. Chris Sununu on the way out is, you know, the last of his sort of line of of the Sununu family that has been so important to Republican politics uh, in this state for so long. And I think that there's something to be said about, you know, just states change. And sometimes they're no longer reflective of what the party wants to appeal to. And for a party that is more Hispanic, more working class, more diverse, you know, less interested in upper class, well-educated voters than it has been historically, that's gonna have an effect. And whether that means that they lose it, I don't know. Um, but it does make it seem like more of a nod toward the past than the future.
0: Yeah. It's obviously bad news for, you know, bar owners in New Hampshire and so on, and it's bad news for journalists. <laughs> but I wonder, you know, for a long time, the great criticism of American politics was it was this unholy alliance between big media and the parties and and it was staged like a sports event, you know, mm-hmm. to, to sort of keep the Keep the masses happy. I mean, perhaps in the long term, this could be a good thing.
1: I I think that change uh, post the Trump era, meaning the Trump era of him in charge of and leading the party, is inevitable, and it's happened before. It happened with Reagan, happened with Nixon, and I think that you know there's uh, but what form that change takes, it really could go in a lot of different directions depending on who ends up being viewed as his heir apparent in leadership of the republican party and in political leadership in washington
0: Mm. well uh, parties are changing and voters are changing too uh you were speaking before we before we started recording you speaking very interestingly about the christian vote Mm -hmm. uh and donald trump and there was a story a few weeks ago in the new york times about this and how evangelicals are identifying as trump voters first and then as evangelicals second which is quite a shift and that speaks to two things. One, the sort of power of Trump's movement, and two, a a certain softening in the evangelical movement or the the piety of it. Yeah,
1: well, I think a big part of that was, uh, frankly, uh, the lack of reaction that we saw from a lot of these same church bodies uh, to the decisions made under the COVID regimes to shut them down, Mm. um, to become, you know, to go along with the idea that religious practice was not something that needed to be defended in the way that, you know, was... Fundamental to people's rights, and while of course there are exceptions to that rule, I think that the the weakness of that is not something that is quickly recovered. Yeah. And similarly to the you know levels, for instance of uh, you know people of school children not attending school of, of truancy in major cities in particular that have never rebounded from the lows of the of the uh, COVID era, and so there's something that I think is. I do think that that's something that can come back because there's this natural desire uh, for people who are believers to worship together and gather together. But for a lot of people for whom that's not that important, I think they've reordered their, their priority list a little bit. Yeah. And they're a lot more likely to, I think, go to the Trump rally and view that as a proto religious experience on some level um, rather than uh, devoting themselves to the, to the church body where, you know, it certainly is not as entertaining, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, for your average, for your average church. Um, but look, I think that the Republican Party is going through a phase, and what comes out at the end of that phase, they'll be different. But they've gone through phases before; they've had certain surges of particular views that have taken them over before, just as they have within the Democratic coalition. Uh, we'll have to see where they what what they end up prioritizing after they go through this period, uh, perhaps the last period. I hope the last period where essentially the oldest cohort of the party decides the outcome in terms of the presidential nominee.
0: Mm. You mentioned donors. You've written a very interesting piece for Spectator World about this, and you describe it as a, a, a disconnect really between the donor class and, and the Republican electorate. Yeah, um, and they increasingly don't understand each other yeah
1: i think that the donor class has uh you know really lost its way and on the republican side they do not have this um they have a very different attitude than the democratic donor uh groups democratic donors tend to and this is an oversimplification of course they tend to invest in things before they're proven yeah and Does that mean that they make mistakes? Sure, but it means that they're investing in things that they believe could change the way that elections uh, turn out, that could have long running effects uh, and outgrowths in terms of different parts of the coalition. And then Republicans, the donors that they have, tend to want to see proven propositions before they jump in. Uh, You know, one of the most powerful Democratic groups, I was referencing these different, uh, you know, external to the party groups that run things, um, is. EMILY's List, uh, which is one of the big pro-abortion groups that's out there and uh, you know is uh, very much kind of a, a left feminist kind of group. Mm. And EMILY uh, stands for, in their parlance, early money is like yeast. <laughs> um, and it's true. It's to say that sort of if you give this money early to a candidate that you like, they'll be able to grow it and be more competitive in a cycle mm. as opposed to having money thrown at them late. Yeah. Um, and I think that... Um, that's a big problem for Republican donors. But I also think another problem that they have is they don't know how to influence the culture. They don't know really what to demand uh, from these different members. And they I think that they've lost a bit of the plot. When you hear someone like Jamie Dimon, who I think is very smart, come out and say things like, well, you know, maybe Donald Trump wasn't wrong about uh, immigration and maybe we shouldn't be demonizing his you know half the american uh, electorate mm. uh, because we disagree with him on some points uh, i think he's saying that from a position of being a very smart and savvy investor and i think that there are very few people who have that same level of savviness in the republican uh, donor uh, class writ large and you know certainly this time around i think their failure to get their act together and their and their repeated pining for the likes of Glenn Youngkin, Brian Kemp, Sununu, Greg Abbott—you know—pick your your popular governor mm. uh, to just swoop in on you know a, a flying trapeze and save their party from another Trump nomination, which they are still willing to accept. Like they will accept him, they will they will write those checks. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that that their their fantasy of that was something that I think ultimately meant that they really didn't
0: play a significant role this cycle. Do you think DeSantis's failure speaks to something to do with governors not being able to, to now become presidential candidates? I
1: think that one thing that we have seen is that we've had uh, time and again over the past several cycles, uh, very popular governors who uh, failed to launch. Mm. Um, you had, obviously, in 2016, you had Scott Walker and Jeb Bush. You know, Walker was probably one of the most popular conservative governors in the country, couldn't make any kind of dent. In 2012, you had Rick Perry, who tried to uh, make a challenging run against uh, uh, Mitt Romney after his success in Texas, completely flamed out after a handful of bad debate performances. And, you know, I think there are other plenty of other examples. Tim Pawlenty is one in particular that sticks out to me. You know, here's a blue state governor who basically was the subject of Ross Douthat and Ryan Salam's uh, book about the future of the Republican Party and his campaign lasted four months. Yeah. So I think, you know, you you look at that and you say there is something there. You had all these senators run in 2016. And I think that they had more success than the governors in part because they were used to being regularly challenged by the media. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're in D.C., anybody can run up to you and say they're from such and such a website and ask you a stupid question Mm -hmm. and you have to deal with it. These governors, they largely don't have to put up with that kind of thing. And Mm. so I think that's part of it. But I think another part of it really is that people no longer evaluate uh, their presidential party uh, possibilities based on any metric of performance. Yes. If you look at Ron DeSantis' argument when he was running this time, um, it was almost entirely based on his performance. It was saying... I made the right choices during COVID. I made the right choices about, you know, uh, teachers unions. I made the right choices about this. I, I've done, I've done it. You know, these other people are promising you things. I've done it. Mm. Nobody seemed to be swayed by that. It just doesn't seem to catch on with anybody. Yeah. Now, you know, from my perspective, I find that to be valuable information as a voter. But for the voters, I think right, right now, they care less about that than about you saying the thing, saying the right thing thing from their yeah. perspective and you know ultimately that means that ron desantis exits with you know eight more delegates than the fake, yeah. you know <laughs> and it's it's like uh, it's just kind of a, a a stunning turn uh for the uh, for a governor who's so prominent but you know the flip side of that is with nikki haley almost none of her arguments have anything to do with her record yes she really doesn't talk about her record as governor at all in part because she had a fairly modest record uh in south carolina she's more known for some of her stances on some critical cultural work topics and the like but i think that that is telling in a way that you know uh, folks are no longer interested in the resume
0: yeah
1: uh and uh, or if they are the resume that you have that you can bring is no longer something that depends on getting any policies done and from my perspective that's a horrible thing because it only incentivizes people to be more and more Avatars of the particular view of their partisan allies, uh, and to you know to say the right buzzwords and and have the right talking points, but you don't actually have to do anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose the argument would lean on that. You know, Trump doesn't talk about policy so much, but he does a little bit. He, you know, does. he is, He's quite canny in the way he presents policies in a very
1: simple terms. I think that I think that he talks more about policy than people give him credit for. It, particularly when it comes to immigration. Yeah, and and I think that that you know, him wrapping his arms around that and refusing to let anybody get him to back off of it, I think is absolutely critical to his success and has been from day one. Mm. Uh, and you know, that's not necessarily something that that is you know that uh, you know, speaks to a level of sophisticated analysis of what um, you know he would do in a second term. But I do think it speaks to uh, the fact that he understands the importance of associating yourself with a certain wing of argument on a particularly important area of policy and just hammering away at it. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that, you know, I think he's done to to uh, very much a good effect for him.
0: And uh, part of what made 2016 so exciting uh, was the, sh- the sort of the war over Trump. Mm-hmm. Now that the war is not really a war, as we've been discussing, it's the the establishment if it the parts that still object have resigned themselves to it almost by now do you think how will this if let's say trump goes on wins the presidency how will that affect his presidency do the establishment say look we've tried eight years to we've been trying for eight years to stop him and we can't do it is there a possibility that there will be some moment of harmony in the party or will it just get worse
1: well, the interesting thing was the the moment of harmony that he had in his first go-round uh, was one that he seems to now regret, which is obviously yeah. the Ryan tax cuts yes. and everything kind of associated with that. You know, he now seems to feel like that was not something, that was something where he kind of, they got one over on him, you know, that this was just a typical Republican policy that could have come out of any president uh, and, uh, and that he, you know, doesn't seem to tout as much as other things. And all, obviously... You know when it came to a lot of other points as well him trying to get you know soldiers out of afghanistan him trying to affect something uh, significant in terms of border policy you know other than his foreign policy successes with things like the abraham accords and some things like that you know he a lot of the other areas of the conservative movement used him mm. to their best advantage you know the the judicial appointees that he had were federalist society picks. They were not necessarily you know, ones that even those closely associated with him ideologically supported all that much. Yeah. Um, and so I think that it's going to be very interesting to see if he has a different approach, should he have the opportunity to have a second term. But we are a long, long way from that. And I mean, this, this, uh, this primary has been uh, certainly uh, uh, much shorter than a lot of us anticipated. Or looks to be headed that way, but you know, even that said, there are uh, there are babies that have not yet been conceived here in New Hampshire tonight who will (laughs) be born before any president, uh, any next uh, presidential election is decided in November.
0: Yes, you mentioned uh, Trump being won over by the Paul Ryan wing of the party and and, and accepting and doing those tax cuts, which he now regrets. But I mean, do you not think he's still a tax cutter at heart? The reason why they were able to to get that over him is because it's fundamentally something he believes yes
1: in. and i think that he'll do the same thing again i think yeah. that that's uh, an area where you know it, he and the party are not much at odds uh, yeah. so we'll, we'll but i again i think that his priority when he goes back is going to be absolutely border policy above all other things because it was the one area where i think he feels the most touched and irritated about his failure to succeed I certainly think that's going to be his priority if he makes
0: it back. Let me finish by uh, asking you to, do, to go a bit horse racy sure. since uh, um, there hasn't been enough of that <laughs> in the last few days. First of all, what, what should people look out for on Tuesday night? What will be the interesting things to to spot?
1: I think the most interesting thing is going to be uh, just how much of the uh, portion of the electorate that was uh, in favor of the, the people who've departed Ron DeSantis. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie ends up, you know, going to Nikki Haley uh, and avoiding going to Donald Trump, especially given that DeSantis's electorate, by many measures, two thirds of it at least, potentially three fourths, said that their second choice was Trump, not Haley. Mm. Um, so, does any of that lingering resentment over the way that he was treated does that translate into a vote? Personally, I don't think it will, but I do think that'll be interesting to watch in part because it's the only thing that can really give the Haley campaign any real confidence or hope regarding her performance in her home state of South Carolina, mm. which I think now becomes, of course, uh, the definitive question. Uh, and uh, if she ends up underperforming, failing to win, then I think she's out uh, yeah. and that's it. Um,
0: you, you think you think she will go down to South Carolina if she
1: I think so, she absolutely has to and absolutely should. Yeah. Unless there's something completely out of expectation that happens uh, on Tuesday night, there's no reason for her to leave before running in her home state, in part because she's out of office. She doesn't have a, the same situation as DeSantis in terms of uh, an immediate political future. And so I think uh, going back down to South Carolina, investing a lot of time there you know, in her own turf, is something that even if she ultimately doesn't end up winning, she almost has to do in order to be considered in the future as someone who can be representative of that state. She has to kind of stake her flag on the ground and show
0: that she can do it. And let's say she she doesn't do that and she she crashes out quite soon, either on Wednesday or after South Carolina. What does she do next? Does she endorse Trump eventually or does she become an independent?
1: Oh I think and, she will endorse I she think she'll endorse to, him
0: yeah the
1: there isn't a level of animosity toward the whole Republican project on Nikki Haley's mm-hmm. part in the same way as someone like Chris Christie right. you know um Chris Christie would run on the no labels ticket if they would have him yeah uh, they're not that interested because the country <laughs> isn't either. And so, but they would be interested in Haley if she. Was. I think they would absolutely be interested in Haley. And I think they, that she very much fits the kind of demographic they would like to appeal to. Mm. I don't think that she's interested in doing that. I think that she, you know, will view herself as having come in second and Ooh. that she has a strong political future, one way or the other. Mm. Who knows what that looks like in terms of the fractious world of South Carolina politics or if she ends up once again being an appointee or something like that. I do think it's interesting that the people who dislike Haley the most in Trump's orbit are people who aren't necessarily the people who will be making determinations about who gets hired or not. Mm. They tend to be people like Tucker Carlson, people like Don Jr., Rand Paul. They're not necessarily the people that Trump is turning to and asking who he should hire. Uh, And I think that he actually likes to, Kind of play people off each other, and so yes, he's. I, I I could see him absolutely having
0: her back. He certainly did that before. I wonder though if he's changed a bit
1: from. from it's he's, certainly he's, possible. I mean, you know, he. I, I think. I You know, uh, we we're dealing in a new territory here because mm-hmm. something like seventy five percent of his cabinet didn't endorse him this time. Yeah, you know, now they may end up endorsing him but they just they didn't come out and do it from the get-go which is pretty much unheard of but it does happen when you're like you know making fun of elaine chow's ethnicity and the like Uh, so things people tend to take things like that personally
0: uh and so just quickly you're you're not ruling out Haley as a vice presidential pick then
1: i wouldn't but i also don't think that she's high on the list i think that uh, i think she's a possibility but i think that it's more likely that trump will want someone who is a, a lesser figure Mm. Uh, let's say. Uh, I think that the problem with someone like Haley is that you look at her and say, from day one, she's going to be working to be the next president. Yeah. And that's not necessarily what he wants in a deep. No,
0: indeed not. Uh, ben, that was fascinating. Thank you very much for talking to me. Great to be with you. That's all for this episode of the Americano podcast. I'd like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz and urge you to leave a generous, kind, and warm-hearted review of this podcast uh, on whichever platform you listen to it.